Welcome to episode 71 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, hosted by Eddie Kramer, Chris Lee, and myself, Winston Moy. We're a trio of CNC nerds, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop, things we're making, and what we're learning along the way. Eddie, Chris, I feel like it's been months, and it has been, so uh, how are you guys doing? Doing really good, Winston. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the last time I was on was September of 2021, and then you guys had an episode... Um, with the zometry guys uh, without me, which is, sorry, I couldn't make that one, but it's really good to get back together and uh, talk to the gang. How about you, Chris? Uh, yeah, it's been a really long time. Um, and, and that span of that time, I've, I've gotten a new job uh, and I've been there for about five months now and things have been pretty amazing. Tell us more. <laughs> uh, so I, I left my aerospace, uh, the aerospace company I was working for, uh, for Amazon. And I know a lot of people are like Amazon. Like most people look at me like, uh, what, what what is it that they do? Then and I'm like, they actually have a uh, prototyping like hardware integration team that makes. Uh, uh, right now we're 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 making a satellite, and it's called Project Kuiper. And if you want to Google it, it's K U I P E R. Our mission is to provide like underserved and underprivileged areas in the world with broadband internet, and we're going to do that by sending up a constellation of satellites. So I'm a part of the team that's working specifically on the telescope portion of the satellite, and we are hardware integration. So we make the hardware, specifically I do the manu, like we do the manufacturing of like parts and stuff that we make for that. And then we have another part of the team that does like the integration with the electronics. Uh, so I've been doing this for five months and I, I love my job. I mean, it's just an amazing place to be. Uh, for those of you listening, like, you know, the trajectory of like, where I've been, where I am now, and I'm super excited to be here because the team is amazing. It's like a family of people, and we're doing uh, some incredibly difficult and complex things. So uh, I, I walk in every morning really excited to, to be doing what I'm doing at, at work. Oh, so, so that's like a low Earth orbit constellations. Um, so like you know, comp- it will be competing with SpaceX Starlink once it's up. I would assume. Yeah, we we are direct competitors to them, basically. Um, Very cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think one of the most amazing things for me, at least, is like when I I remember walking in the doors of Amazon and uh, the first machine on my right is like this, a nicely blue painted current HD. And I I was like, if you're, if you tell me that I'm going to be able to run this, you might as well just sign the paper now. And he just laughed and I was like, all right. And then that's basically how it started. And then I looked down the line and there's basically like a DMG life tool lathe, uh, a DMG Mori, uh, a Hermley, like C32U, uh, and then uh, a Datron C5 just chilling there. And like, this is basically every machine that you could possibly want to work with uh, all lined up in a row. The shop is not where we want it to be, but it's it's the cleanest, most organized shop I have ever been in. I'm talking about like list of cabinets where you open up and all the tools are labeled, right? Like bull nose, end nose, ball mills, specialty slotting tools. We have all the drills uh, put in the correct spot, labeled by size. Uh, you know, like by the wire sizes. Every, everything is just where it has a place. Everything is like uh, kaizen foamed. Um, by the machine stations, we have uh, these foam cutouts with torque wrenches, uh, like everything that you can need and preset to the torque vices that you would be using on that machine so that the operator, you don't have to walk more than one or two steps for anything. We have like on, on-site like metrology stuff within the shop. And then we also have a metrology lab for like the more like CMM or a 3D scanning LIDAR or anything like that that we might be doing. We have an x-ray machine too that if we need to, right? So a really well-equipped shop. Uh, and we're doing just like, I mean, in, to, for me at least, it's like some of the craziest things I've ever machined, right? Like I, I've done some things with tabbing that I never thought would be possible. <laughs> like um, just because because we're in prototyping, we're making any time between one to, or I think our max is like 30 parts, right? But usually like 10 is like a pretty sweet number for testing. And when you're making 10 parts and like the deadlines are very like aggressive, uh, you don't really have time to sit there and like make fixtures and things. So we take full advantage of the 19 pallets on the Hermley. We literally tab everything. Even if it's like something we're making that has an optical surface, I will still tab it. And um, I've been trying to find things to share, but it's very difficult, right? Like if I tried to take pictures in the middle of the process, 
you don't really see like what it is and it still already has too much of the features and stuff. So I, uh, eventually I'll find something or maybe if I get some free time, I'll just cut an optical surface on the current. That's not really a part. And then I can show, um, you know, uh, it, what, like how amazing the current is in, in that retrospect that it can cut just amazing, like submicron surface finishes, which then we can send to get single diamond point turned and then like bounce lasers off that thing, right? Which is incredible to me. And on top of that, like just being in a place where like my whatever you want to learn is at your fin- my fingertips, right? Like if I wanted to learn about like uh, building PCB boards and think we have all that equipment to make our own custom like PCB boards and electronics and wiring harnesses and things and stuff. So anytime that I want to walk over and bug the guys, they're, you know, I can and they'll be willing to teach me whatever it is I want to learn. And then also like the optical guys who are doing the testing, like, you know, they're constantly, uh, I'm always asking them questions and they're, they're telling me about the things that they're doing. So like, it's, you're not just, a machinist here you're not just a programmer like i'm slowly becoming like a a pseudo like software person and i'm also learning like the electronics portions and the optical testing and why this is what we're doing is so hard and no one's ever done it before because it's like you're trying to get two satellites in orbit constantly talking to each other right and sending data back and forth with like minimal loss which is just that statement alone is it was already like almost a miracle in itself right and then trying to be trying to do this in a constellation of satellites is even more incredible. So, weight is so critical on anything going into space. I'm sure you're doing like massive weight reduction and material removal, and ending up like great, a lot of thin walls and tricky stuff to machine, right? Yeah, and honestly, the the machines are so good that it has taken. It's probably like my lack of machining experience that I have is probably carried me a little bit right because when i make a five millimeter hole in the kern it comes out five millimeters yeah. to the point you know what i mean zero, like zero, 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 like yeah. it, it's like really close and once you dial in the wear comp like to exact if you wanted like a slip fit or press or whatever like once you dial that in it is like always there the hermley does the same thing um so it really helps when your machines are just top notch right because then you don't have to worry so much about as many variables in that retrospect. So like if you were like me, like a less experienced machinist, you can actually make really accurate parts. Uh, and then when things get hard, that means I, I have to improve my own process, right? And so it's, it's been a really good feedback loop of like growth because I know instantly when like, hey, if this isn't working, uh, it's 100% not the machine, right? It's 100% yeah. me. It's not Hypermill yeah. uh, and it's not Hermley or current. It's definitely me, so... It, it really has forced me to, uh, in a layman's turn, get good really fast, right? So, um, and you're still uh, you're still in the Southern California area, right? You didn't have to move for this job. No, yeah, no, I'm still in the Southern California area. I still commute. Uh, commute is not terrible because there's a long stretch of the road where it's like just empty, you know. But um, it's still a pretty good distance. So I've been thinking about buying a house closer to work so I can. I can play there on the weekends because the machines, uh, if they don't run on the weekend, then I can, I'm basically allowed to go in and make parts for myself. Right. So (laughs) yeah. How about Um, the, uh, motorcycle shop or the, you still get any time to go over there? No. Like I told them like, uh, when I started Amazon, I was like, I, I'm probably going to have to focus everything on here. I probably won't have any bandwidth left after I get home. And it's true. Like, um, I'm still doing that 24 hour fast thing. So I eat once a day and I get into work and I just, I don't stop working for like eight to 10 hours straight because like there's so much stuff to do. And honestly, the time flies so fast. I sometimes feel like I get into work and I blink and it's like the day's over. And I'm like, did I even do anything today? Like, I I don't even know what I like, you know, it's like, I, and I love that. I love that fast pacedness because it makes time fly so fast so quickly i'm not like looking up at the clock and going like oh my god it's only 10 o'clock it's usually like holy shit it's already three and like i've only made one part or something right so uh it it, it helps i i enjoy that more than i do the the previous which is like if you, everything feels kind of slow so yeah. um yeah and i like my team like you know J- uh, jamie underwood he's he's been there forever and he's a he's a great guy and a great manager and then we just hired this other guy um, who's been like a apps engineer for Hypermill and uh, who worked for a bunch of mold companies and other like really really crazy stuff. So I'm just surrounded by good people and and, and 
and talent, basically. So I get to learn, right? I get to absorb. I'm just basically like the biggest sponge that I could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um, and in an environment which cultures and uh, nurtures that growth. So it's it's a perfect, really good place for me to be right now. Would y'all be doing like general purpose prototyping for anything going on in Amazon? Or are you guys like dedicated to Kuiper? Or if you can say, I'm just kind of curious, or is that like down the road? Is that project, you know, kind of reach a steady state? Would you be doing something completely different, like injection molds for some consumer product? Or is it always going to be kind of aerospace focused there? That's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer. And I'm not even sure okay. Amazon would know the answer. Because right now, our sole purpose is to like make parts for the, the satellite. Yeah. Let's say like we fast forward into the future and we finish prototyping the satellite. Um, we definitely would do production probably elsewhere. And then like, I, and then they may pivot us to a different thing, right? Or there might be more work to do somewhere else or maybe refinement or something like that. So that's, I don't know. And I don't even know if they know, and we won't know until we get to that point where it's like, they no longer need us to prototype because we've already locked everything and it's ready to to basically full send mode. Right. Um, And then at that point we'd have to reevaluate what's going on. So Chris, this has been eating away at me. You said you get, you guys do telescopes. What exactly is a telescope for on a satellite? Is it for like star tracking? Is it for optical links? Where does your piece fit into the satellite? Uh, it's basically without saying anything, it's basically everything related to what you just said. Okay. Fair enough. So like there, there it's, it, let's say there's like a pretty like tracking, you know, motion where things are like, what are they doing? And at the same time also projecting. Right. So like, there's a combination of these things and we and our systems that we're building is all a part of that. So everything that encompasses that telescope is basically what we're working on right now. Okay, so this is a really critical functional component for yes. the satellite. Yes. Okay. And th- there's a lot of complicated stuff like I said like, you know, it's hard enough to two moving objects tracking each other simultaneously, but now you're trying to parse like data through that, right? And create broadband uh, while you're in space. So it, it, you just combine all these factors together with technology that we have now, and, and it's a very difficult task, right? So I, I don't know how our, how SpaceX is doing right now. I don't know where they are at in satellite development, if they're doing optical stuff or they're just still doing RF band or things like that. But um, it, it's not easy, right? So Well, I'll yeah. plug this. So uh, <laughs> for anyone that is curious what uh, about what SpaceX currently up to, um, Elon Musk just did a big update couple of days ago on uh starship and uh like the raptor 2 it was pretty good it's on youtube it was i just i'm about three quarters of the way through watching it um i think he did it yeah it was in boca chica but it's pretty cool like it's going to be a lot of launches in theory this year like maybe 50 launches is the goal he's trying to get to uh 50 launches a year minimum uh or at least this year so i'm hoping to catch one i don't know if you guys uh like I'm not sure yet. I haven't started doing the research. See how close you can get, like an Airbnb. If there's one, you can get close enough to make decent watching of a launch. There's a couple resort hotels, I think, just north of that, where you could see it. Um, I, I know I've seen live streams from like uh, hotel balconies before. It, it's totally possible. It's just the problem is everything SpaceX is so new that you never know if it's actually going to take off on time. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's not that big a deal because, you know, it's a pretty short trip. If I, you know, drive down there for the weekend, they don't launch. If I just have a nice weekend at the beach. For you guys, it'd be a bigger commitment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like yeah. a lot of times I watch, shout out to Everyday Astronaut, but like when he's there streaming like the launches, he's at some hotel balcony and like he could be there for like three days or something right before it launches or yeah. he could be there the first day. And it's, yeah. So that that's, I, I would love to go to a launch. It's just, I, I can't like leave for like three days and hope that I catch it and stuff. Um, yeah. So I think well, for me that the next launch party I attend is probably our own, right? When we send our, yeah, our, our satellite exactly. setup to what, what company will probably have a, like a launch party or something. Yeah. I think, you know, at least on SpaceX, the cadence of launches is going to be ramping up over the next few years. So there's going to be lots of, you know, he was actually talking about three launches a day, every day. <laughs> I think where he's trying to get with the reusable boosters. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He actually said he could launch, he could reuse the booster three times an hour. And 
the starship maybe three times a day because it's it takes longer, right? To it has to make at least one orbit before it can land. But the yeah. booster's up and down pretty quickly um, and can be turned around and you know in theory and ready to go in the same hour twice, you <laughs> know, two more times. Just nuts. That's crazy. But, yeah. So anyway, yeah, my goal is I've never seen a launch of any sort, so I think that's probably my first opportunity will be one of the ones at Boca Chica someday soon. So that's on my bucket list. I, I didn't get to see Saturn V or, or the uh, space shuttle launch in, you know, in person. Yeah, it's the same here. I, I haven't been able to. I think, Winston, you've been to launches, right? I've been to two launches, and I couldn't stay for a third because they kept scrubbing it. Uh, oh, I saw one launch at night. Beautiful. I heard one launch out at Vandenberg because uh, it was super foggy, but uh, JPL Richard said he went to a, a recent one and visibility was great. So uh, if you want to come out to the West Coast, uh, I, I think they're going to be doing more Starlink launches out of there uh, on a semi-regular basis. And the good thing about that, that you're probably not going to get too much of at Boca Chica until they're, uh, they have their operations down smooth, is the landing portion. Uh, which is super cool. Um, just you get the the full body effect of sonic booms, um, and just watching something falling out of the sky. <laughs> um, so I don't know if, if ever uh, there's another weekend launch and you can make it out. We should totally go. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see. And, and the fact, like, when every time I watch it on stream, it's just like my jaw just drops every time that thing. And he's, they're making it look so easy now. Yeah. Like I remember the first time they had a couple, the bunch of failures leading up to that successful one. But it's just incredible that they're able to land that thing. And now you know, now they can reuse the same rocket. Like yeah. that's insane, man. So um, just still in SpaceX, yeah. So. The plan now, like at least at Boca Chica, and they're going to build, I think, the same thing out at uh, Cape Kennedy is, you know, they have that real tall, I can't remember what they call it, like grabbing something. You know, that real tall. Uh, the uh, uh, like the chopstick the, grabber thingy. Yeah. yeah. I know so what it's going to land on that. It's like actually going to just, you know, hover and then the arms on the gantry grab it so it can be turned around, you know, refueled and turned around very quickly. It's already on the, it's basically landing on the launch gantry and ready to go as soon as they refuel it and stack whatever's going on top of it, Starship or whatever. Uh, which is, you know, he had the animate, uh, animation of that, like how it's supposed to work. And it's, it's nuts. It's just nuts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they don't have, uh, to have landing gears now, right? So it's saves no. off a bunch of weight and complexity, right? So then, yeah. Well, I'm assuming it's sense. touching the. It's probably touching the ground by the time, you know. I think yeah, maybe that lowers it down, but um, it's got to have some sort of support when they're fueling it. I would imagine it gets pretty heavy. Well, that's from the launch mount, so it'll catch it on the grid fins, and then uh, it'll pivot Lower. back over the the launch platform and then drop it on that. Gotcha. And okay, I so think it's like there's a an alignment mechanism, like. It's like a polar coordinate system, right? So you got the the angular, and also I think there's some radial adjustment. So it should be able to reposition it over the launch mount reliably. That'll be super cool to see uh, <laughs> when it works. And I, I'm just terrified, like, if there is some mishap during landing, how long is it going to take them to rebuild that infrastructure? At Boca Chica, they have two of those towers pretty close to each other. And so, like, in the animation, when one is launching, it's like the rocket wash is actually touching the other, you know, which has a starship fueled up, ready to go. Right. It's getting ready to launch right after it. It's like, if one of those blows, it's going to take them both. It, you know. It's going to be spectacular either way. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say it's that. Like right. You're going to lose two ships. Cause there's, it looks like in the animation, they're pretty close to each other, but um, they may have just been in the animation, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's updates worth. Uh, if I can, I'll put the link in the show note. So, Out of curiosity, have you guys uh, paid any attention to rocket lab? I don't. No, I don't think I know them. So they fly an uh, a rocket called the Electron, which instead of having like a like a combustion driven turbo pump, they use a battery operated one right now. But in the future, they're going to make a bigger rocket um, that's reusable, closer to like Falcon Nine and classification, I think. Um, but they have a very interesting philosophy for rocket design um, for that particular one, the Neutron. And, um, like, they're all about reducing the, like, the, the performance margin needed 
for that uh, vehicle. So they're designing the engine to like basically be able to casually lift a payload to orbit instead of having to like run it at like 110 percent you run it at like 80 percent the wear and tear is lower the lifespan's much longer um and i'm kind of curious how that's going to play out versus the uh starship raptor philosophy of like some like really superstar engineering kind of stuff uh versus like a really safe uh not pushing the extremes design um it'll be fun to see how that plays out yeah, that's interesting because, like, you know, if you look at especially the big, like, first stage engines, usually, like, turbo pumps on those are, like, 50,000, 60,000 horsepower. That's pretty crazy to move that to electric. Um, well, of course, well, they get a lot one, smaller, like, yeah, a bunch of smaller Electron's engines. a much smaller vehicle. Okay. Um, but, like, just for complexity, like, you're a startup. That made it a lot simpler to integrate everything. Yeah, turbo uh, pumps like, like going the most forward, complex part of the rocket engine, right? It's like... Uh, the most intense to get right so once you you take a design philosophy that's like instead of building an f1 engine like let's take a toyota engine that'll run for a million miles and drop that in a rocket like what's going to happen is it going to work are you going to get the performance are you going to be able to see the reusability you need to justify all that i think either way like this is the next 20 years is going to be incredibly exciting right like because you have uh, all these successes that SpaceX has had has basically paved the way and the hype, right, for the space race. And I think a lot of these other companies uh, are benefiting from that hype a little bit, right? Whether yeah, they're investors, proving reusability is, is is possible. Yeah, yeah. And then like all these all these other companies are like now maybe that weren't as good funded before. Maybe their investors are seeking out to fund these companies out to compete and like it's creating this really good atmosphere for like United States, like space manufacturing. Right. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to like, I think in our lifetime, we're going to see some really crazy things. I don't know what those things are, whether we land on the moon again or something and we start making a base, you know, or or are we going to, I don't think we'll, we'll see it going to Mars, but for me being able to go from LA to like, let's say uh, like Vietnam or something in 20 minutes, right? That that would be enough for me to go to the grave and be happy because like the fact that we're rocket launching a group of people safely, consistently, the cost of travel and the time of travel is now much lower. Uh, I think that even though we can connect instantly through uh, being online, I think being able to physically be across the world in 20, 30 minutes that's pretty amazing. I think that's yeah. going to do some really crazy things for us as well, right? Uh, hopefully yeah, positive I'd, things, yeah. I'd love to be able to get down to, uh, like, uh, Josh Hacko down in Australia in 25 oh, right? minutes, you know? Exactly. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Like, hey, yeah, I'll just, you want to get you want to grab lunch? Yeah, okay, all right, I'll be over, yeah. right over. I'm going right, to take yeah, the like, ballistic over there. I'll be there. Right <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm, Ellen, um, SpaceX announced also this week, I think they, they've got, I think they said, I hope I'm quoting this amount, right? But they have the cost of launch is now like they've got it down to $10 million. Um, I'm assuming that's, you know, for the full cargo capacity. So like if you're actually launching, you know, a hundred satellites on one launch and then the per satellite cost is even lower. Right. But to get, a, I guess to get one of their rockets up into space and back, um, it's about, you know, $10 million investment and that's going to keep dropping. Like, I don't know what the old like space shuttle, I'm sure it was, another zero on that number, right? To get the space shuttle into orbit and back. But uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. The little asterisk there is that 10 million would be for Starship's projected costs. I think right now the Falcon 9 is about 60 million. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's where they're headed, right? With Once that but starts in the super heavy. I also don't right? know uh, how much savings they get from reusability. Because uh, there's not a lot of transparency into their cost figures. So yeah. we, we can't really know how much it costs SpaceX to refly a rocket 10 times. Yeah, he said the new Rap- the Raptor V2 is half the cost of the V1, which is kind of interesting. That's their main, their their uh, new engine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you so they have pictures of it. to fly. Yeah, they have pictures of it um, next to the V1. It's like, it looks like they greatly simplified it you know, the plumbing. So it looks, it looks like put a lot of work in it. (laughs) 
Yeah, uh, I can't wait for more details about that engine, actually. Yeah. Um, we have a mutual friend that works uh, Raptor Manufacturing, and I know he can't tell me much, but um, from all of our previous conversations, I feel like it boils down to, A, like just rethinking everything, um, leveraging like material science developments, because um, there's like that engine does not look like like v2 does not look like v1 and i saw someone online they posted like kind of like a, a meme picture like the the progression like v1 v2 and then v3 is just like a pipe stuck to the rocket <laughs> nozzle <laughs> and uh i feel like that's pretty accurate but yeah it's just it boggles my mind a how how simplified they got v1 or down to v2 but then it makes me wonder like how did they ever come up with something as complex as v1 right you're coming at this engineering problem from two different directions simplify but also like increasing performance adding features and it just seems like they must have gone really wrong with v1 to have uh, put all this effort into v2 i think the other part of that is like you 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 don't know how to make v1 yet so you just try to like solve the problem any way that you can and then once you have v1 you now have like a, a, a massive amount of like data set, right? Like that you can get off of V1. And then using that data, you're able to refine, retune into what you see now V2, which is why it's probably much more simpler because they realize uh, we don't need this, this thing, we can do it like this. Uh, we have the data for this. This thing is more important. Like they, they have something to go off of, right? Like uh, as opposed to their version one, which is like they have nothing to go off of. So which is which makes okay. sense that it's more complex. And then now that they've learned, right, they can see what's actually needed. And then now they can start to simple. It's much easier to refine, I think, than it is to come up with like a blank piece of paper rocket. Right? Yeah, you definitely learn yeah, every time you build something, you learn, right? So the, the next one should be better. That's why uh, like just going at it fast and failing fast, I think is better than sitting there and over engineering. Just okay. get one out. Get it out, get it done, watch it fail horrifically, and then reiterate, like pivot, like learn fast, grow, like refine. I think that's like a much faster way to do it because the things that you learn along the way will have impact down the road in a linear way, right? Like it's going to help in some way, but you may not have known how that thing would help you if you did not fail in the beginning like you did. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think our, our 30 minute SpaceX commercial is over. <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, yeah. rocket science, but uh, what have you guys been up to, uh, Winston, in the in the shop? Honestly, I don't even know. the The past couple months have just been a blur. I've been working on uh, an accessory. I I think I can say it now. I mean, I assume this podcast will come out in like a week or two or three. But I'm working on the side panels for a little enclosure for the VFD setup that we're coming out with at carbide we're we're doing a construction that's uh, a combination of sheet metal and plastic panels um, just from a scaling perspective at the quantity we want to do it seems to make the most sense right now so i've been working on some some hdpe panels that will go enclose the the vfd unit and trying to dial that program in to get it super reliable so that someone else can run this program, just load material, hit cycle, start, and get parts out that are consistent and look good and don't require any like manual rework has been surprisingly difficult. And the issue that I'm running into uh, is that HTPE, if you get the speeds and feeds just a little wrong, you start to get like strands wrapping around the cutter. And over the course of 30, 40 minutes, you get another strand, you get another strand on an eighth inch cutter that's only got maybe an inch of stick out. It starts stacking up until you have this like cone that looks like an inverted Christmas tree spinning around. And every time you take a deep slotting cut, it's just like abrading or rubbing the HTPE. So you get kind of like a, a rounded uh, rounding of all your edges, you get swirl marks, and it's just, it's not great. And, like, the chips come off really easily, like, you just pull them off when you're done, but trying to choose some machining strategies to avoid the, that buildup of stringies or to minimize it took me, like, 10 or 12, like, tries, just iterating each time, like, let me reorder the toolpath, let me change my speeds and feeds, and what actually helped me the most was just going back to fundamentals, like, looking at a tool manufacturer's recommendations, reading up on the internet, like, how do you improve the like the cut quality in hdpe and improve the long-term reliability and like 
I was getting a little complacent in my programming. I'm just like, eh, crank it up to 24,000 RPM and just send it. But actually just looking at the feeds and speeds data, I should have been taking a, a larger chip load. And so that's a combination of just like maybe like bumping up the feed rate a little bit and bringing down the RPM to like 16, 15,000 even lower just so that the flutes are able to shave chips off cleanly like large chips that that you're not just kind of like flailing the cutter at the the material you're actually letting it take a bite a large chip that has the mass to eject itself has dramatically improved the uh the programs you know i did the that blue and white parts i was doing uh the two color hdpe i, I ran into that same issue i didn't I mean i ran a bunch of that plate it didn't really cause me any problems. I, I would end up with like the little stringies um, building up on the tool, but they would, I guess, you know, I was moving the machine fast enough that they, they would build up like two or three feature, like entries into the material, then they would break off, right? And then start building up mm -hmm. again. Like one thing I noticed is like most of them were building up during the helical entry. Like I, I never could solve the problem. Uh, it never really, I was lucky that it wasn't really marring the finish or anything. Uh, so I just basically, they would build up like to a certain point and then snap off during the machining. So they never really got to the point um, where they were interfering with the cut. But I had to, you know, at the end of that operation, I had to stop the spindle and pull them off before it went and put the tool back because it would interfere with the tool going back in the magazine. They have that little bird's nest on there. Oh, so, yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like when it was actually doing the cut, I didn't see any buildup. It's, it was always in the helical entry and I tried to plunge and it got worse. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's something to do with like the entry forms, the, the longer string. And then I get pretty clean chips. Like when it's actually, doing did you, it. did you play around with conventional versus climb milling? No. Um, that's an idea though. Yeah. I just, um, I, so I there, really, there's, there's kind of two things that are going on. Kind of like when you're taking a, a partial. So going back every time I was doing a slot and cut, I would not see any string formation. And I think the reason because of that is when you look at how the cutter sweeps through the material, it's starting in a deep part of the material. There's lots of material behind it. And when it comes out of the material, it's like 180 degrees opposed. And it's very difficult for that material to stay intact once that cutter sweeps out of the material. And it's, it's when you're taking, imagine a, a helical spiral where there's a little bit of overlap. Like for a three millimeter cutter, your bore diameter is less than six millimeters. You're kind of, in certain cases, cutting and shaving material out, but at the end of the cut, you're kind of just slapping the material out of the way, but there's still that chip hanging onto the material in front of it. And so when the cutter comes around again, you're shaving a little more out, but those chips stay linked. And uh, that kind of, for me, I think that's what was causing issues when I was doing helical ramps. And I ended up just doing shallow, quick plunges and then going straight into a contour or a pocket. And that helped it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was, like I said, I never, I never solved it to my satisfaction. I could get it pretty minimalized, but never to the point where I could uh, let that program like go to the next stop and put the tool away without checking it first. So yeah, did it was you, kind of a pain. Um, did you try angling one of the nozzles like right at the, the spindle head? Um, just to try and knock the chips off. I had, so I was just running air there and I had, you know, basically oriented on the tool like normal. Usually what would happen is when the tool would retract to move over to like the next cell on the, on the, uh, stock, it, that's when the chip or when that bird's nest would break off. I don't know if it was just the, you know, acceleration in Z was doing it or if it was just being clear of the material, let it come loose most of the time. Like sometimes it would, it would stay on there for two or three cells and then break off. It would kind of build up to a certain size and then the RPM would fling, you know, it was too much mass, right? For that RPM, it would eventually overcome yeah. the, it would just fly off. I don't know if the air was helping or if it was just like, usually it would, if it was a big mass on there, as soon as it came in contact with the stock, like on the next uh, station or the, you know, the next cell on this, I was doing like a batch, right? Um, so it was hopping all over the plate. It would, when it touched the material, it would normally knock it off. Um, but then of course a new one would be forming right away. So. And there were some pretty big balls <laughs> of material. Like, you know, like if I unstrung it, it was probably like 20 millimeters long on some of those uh, single unbroken strands. Uh, it never melted to the tool. It wasn't anything to do with heat. It was just, like you said, it, it was long, long unbroken strands. Yeah, cutter. exactly. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if like uh, one of those um, chip breaking, like roughing tools would do better. Might yeah, I thought that. about it. I just, I never... Like by the time I decided to order it and like when it would have arrived, I had just uh, committed to figuring it out 
um, with different machining strategies. Um, there's one point where I'm using a parallel toolpath to rough just to minimize um, the length of the toolpath uh, for each leg. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of random weird techniques um, for large pockets. I would kind of slot um, like running a trace operation on some some contours that just crisscross it, just to break it up. So when you're you're doing that pocket toolpath, you have a much shorter potential. Like the chips yeah. are going to end yeah. up much shorter. Yeah, like um, so. I just I threw I threw every trick I had at it, uh, and I finally got it to a place where I was okay with it. I did see that Haas um, had a video about how to how to remove chips, and if you can uh, run the spindle backwards for a second or two, that can sometimes yeah. do it. But we can't really do that on uh, the spindle. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I had a lot of people suggest that when they saw it in my videos when I was doing that job. It's like just reverse the spindle. Like I wish I could. <laughs> Neo doesn't have a reversible spindle, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. I think like for I could definitely see where like different. Different tool, different geometry. That would be a lot bigger problem for me. This is a pretty small tool, but uh, I can. I would assume that you know the size of the buildup is proportional to the like the size of the cut, right? So these are pretty small, shallow cuts. And but if I had to like a big piece to profile out, well, like you said, I guess profiling it didn't really build up as bad when you're full slotting. But I don't do a lot of HDPE, so it hasn't been too big a problem. Point is, I have the program now at a place where I can just let someone run it, and uh, that's that's been a huge weight off my chest. So I can go back to design. Um, was this on the Neo? Can you say, or was that? No, it was on the HTM. HTM so okay. the thing about these is, uh, I'm using uh, plastic stock that's twelve by twelve, and it's three eighths of an inch thick, and that's right at the point where there could be a little bit of warpage in the material. And it's just a little too strong for the vacuum to actually reliably hold it flat. So I'm actually using a kind of a hybrid system. I've got clamps around the perimeter of the material. I bore a couple holes and then I put screws through the material. And those holes actually go through like mounting holes that are on the final part. So it actually works really well. The operator uh, hits start. It goes for about five minutes. They come back. They put in a couple screws, and they uh, hit start again. And they come back in like half an hour, and it's done. And it's okay. also the material size doesn't quite fit on the uh, the Neo nicely, um, just because it's it's one square foot, so about 300 millimeters. Um, and we couldn't fit two of those panels side by side in the Neo at once. Yeah, yeah, it's just a little too big. That's all I got, Eddie. What do you have? Yeah, so few things so um you know i'm still doing the molds like i was just kind of looking back at the end of the year you know saunders style recap in my head <laughs> you know what i was happy about what i wanted to change and uh just trying to come up with my 2022 business plan and really like i was hoping last year was going to be like i was kind of focusing on keeping capital expenditures low but i ended up you know because i i by the beginning of the year of last year i realized i wasn't gonna wasn't gonna need a second neo because I kind of just got the, the efficiency out of the first machine, especially on the mold work. Um, that's really dialed in now. Uh, I'm not having any trouble keeping up with the mold growth. But I ended up, you know, having my compressor woes. So <laughs> ended up, you know, spending quite a bit of money on a Kaiser and, and various other things, right? So, like, this year, I'm more focused on, like, I want to just kind of add a little bit to my customer list gradually. And then uh, kind of just focus on uh, like cash flow and bringing in revenue, right? Without any large purchases this year, because like the economy right now, like I'm seeing good growth in my business, but I worry about where things are headed with inflation and you know even just material shortages, right? This it's still we're not out of the woods, right? So I'm kind of just I'm trying to be conservative this year, and uh, you know if I'm going to do buy any any new machines, it won't be till 2023 if I or if I move into a different space or whatever. Like I, I kind of finally decided like in December that I'm not going to do that in 2022. It just makes things easier to say, okay, you know, I don't see any need to have to do that for another 12 months. So my, my life became a lot easier <laughs> once I kind of reached that decision. Yeah. So, so far it's been, been working pretty well. Um, so as far as like jobs going on, I had, uh, I don't know if you guys remember those Delrin gears I used to make on the Bantam for one of my clients. I think the last time I made them until recently, it was like 20, 18 made a bunch of them on the like 12 at a time on the bantam it was torture <laughs> making them <laughs> no i remember uh, that you had that little yeah. uh that super cool fixture plate thing that you made yeah i had the fixture and, and the other nice thing i had going for me is i had two bantams 
it's actually that's Bantam Tools had sent me the second uh, that's the PCB mill right when uh, right about the time I landed that work. So I was actually able to run uh, like op one on one fixture on one machine and then flip it right over to op two on a, a different fixture, you know, for the backside of the, of the gears and it had a pretty good little, you know, workflow going there, but, but I was having to do at least for op one, I was having to tape, you know, use double sided tape, the whole little stock blanks down. And uh, so it was pretty tedious to set the, just to load the fixture and then to clean it up when I was done. And it took, you know, I was making the same quantities um, I'm making on the Neo now. So like batch size of hundred, like around 110, gears which actually uh so this job came back late last year first time to do it on the neo and the whole batch easily fits on the neo i can do like 176 at once on the neo a (laughs) big plate of stock uh all vacuum held yeah i I started off uh when i made them on the bantam I, i would cut the starting stock from bar you know the gears are about one inch in diameter um these are like little delrin spur gears and so i was just cutting you know like salami off a bar of uh delrin is my blanks. And, you know, I kind of started that way with the Neo. I said, well, I'll just, you know, reuse my process as much as I can. I, I thought I could hold those with vacuum. Like it's, I made this custom fixture, uh, vacuum fixture to hold each of the blanks. You know, I could get like, I think with the fixture, I would get about a hundred on the, on the Neo. Uh, didn't quite have enough vacuum to hold those and machine them aggressively. <laughs> so I gave up, you know, I tested that didn't work, decided to just move the whole process over to a large sheet and, you know, cookie cutter them out using vacuum for op one and then a custom fixture bolt down fixture for op two, which is the same way I did it on the uh, Bantam machine. That was almost exactly the same as the op two process on the Bantam just scaled up to 170 plus stations uh, and that worked great. So yeah, I mean, other than there's still, a, it was a pain in the butt to load that fixture because every gear gets screwed down with one little, like a little screw and a cap. So <laughs> loading that many stations, you know, just, Turning that many bolts took a little while, but but yeah, I mean it was so much faster than you know doing them twelve at a time. So and that worked great, and uh, that was in like November I ran that. So I posted some of that on Instagram. That was the first time to do it on the Neo. I could probably do it in half the time. Uh, be a lot more aggressive on some of the ops. Uh, now that I know kind of how much vacuum I'm losing by the end. Uh, so yeah, I'm hoping to get more of those. That's, that's actually a fun job to run. Uh, the other thing I've, other than molds, I, I had a, my first ABS plastic job, which that's another one of those things. Like I always, for plastics, I usually start with my Delrin speeds and feeds and then like for HDB and ABS, like that's so much easier to cut. Like I keep doubling my speeds and speeds and it's still, there's room to go faster. Like that was kind of what I was learning on this one. Uh, I didn't do enough to really get it optimized. Uh, I think I made, I've made 200 parts of these. They're like a, about a two inch by three inch, super simple uh, vacuum plate work. So I can cut like 16 of these parts out of an 18 by 16 inch by half inch plate of ABS. That's what fits on the Neo. And uh, the only scary thing about that was uh, this is the first time I've to fit that many. There's that's almost using up the whole plate. You know, when you profile around that part at the end, you know, you start losing vacuum, right? So I, I'm down to like half a bar of vacuum by the time uh, that job is done. But, you know, I ran, I think I ended up running, um, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 20 plates and never had a part pop off. So that was like, that's about as low as I would go. <laughs> and that last, like the last final release op was actually a, a bottom, I mean, a backside chamfer tool just to clean up the bottom edge, do an edge break on it on the, the face that was up against the vacuum plate. So I ran everything really fast except for that op. Like that was by that point, like the parts are barely hanging on. So ran that nice and gentle and it works like, uh, and I would definitely recommend if anyone's, you know, doing vacuum plate work on Daytron vacuum, you know, with, where you have the vacuum card, the sacrificial layer underneath, uh, you can get away with running a, something like a backside chamfer tool. You know, it'll cut just a little bit into the paper if you get your Z dialed right. But I was able to like, it did so little damage to the paper. I was able to use that vacuum card for the whole like 20 plates on the same card. So yeah, it's, that's a good strategy. First time I tried it, it saved me having to do a, you know, second setup, flip the plate over, probe it in and, and clean up those, uh, those chamfers. That was, I was pretty happy with that. Two questions. Did you have to adjust the lower vacuum limit, uh, where the, the Neo alarms (laughs) out? Yeah. So my Neo, I don't know if you know, I have like one of the first series two in the U S and I ordered it like literally the week they announced them um, back in 2019. Uh, And at that time, the vacuum monitoring wasn't an option. Like they, they offered, I I think they were still kind of finalizing the, the product offering. And I don't remember that even being an option. I'm not sure you can order one today without the vacuum monitoring. Um, So I don't have vacuum monitoring on mine. 
uh, I can go as low as I want. The machine's not going to stop, <laughs> which is good and bad. So that's actually uh, the one expense I might, or the one investment I might make in the Neo this year is uh, adding that option. It can be added in the field. It's just uh, some plumbing in the, the digital gauge and the, the digital I.O. to uh, pause the machine. Yeah, when I was going to say, half a bar is, is below where it normally alarms out. Yes. Our machine, yeah. like, uh, it goes at between 0.65 to 0.6. Yeah. Yeah. It's normally like when I get below six on most parts, I would be really watching it. That's kind of my lower limit mentally, especially if it's like, yeah. you know, if I know it's a high risk part, to, if it's a big plate, I don't worry about it as much. Uh, Cause it's still quite a bit of grip, even at just below six. But, but yeah, this is for, that was new territory for me getting down to five bar or half a bar. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, surely this is going to pop up. And even when like everything was done and I went to like the part that was probably least secure on there was the remnant of the plate because the, the pieces were actually big enough. They were they had pretty good vacuum surface area, but the plate is like just a little frame by the time I'm done. It was barely hanging on. I could just almost, you know, I could feel a little bit of resistance when I lifted it up um, with the vacuum still on. Yeah, I was probably pushing it. Yeah, if that was aluminum, I, w I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have risked it. You know, I figured if, if this comes up, it's not going to damage the spindle it would just fling apart you know cut the, yeah. the abs was pretty soft so super easy to cut i had no problems with that like no stringies no nothing uh cuts like a dream maybe i should switch to uh abs for the side panels yeah actually you probably it, yeah, it's probably the same cost it's super cheap material and it cuts cuts really well i didn't have any melting any issues at all and i probably like i said i probably i was pretty aggressive but i don't think i was uh at the limit of what the, even the neo could do in that material uh, second question is, is this for one uh, vacuum plate or do you have the whole machine table set up for vacuum? Yeah, it's a 16, it's a 16 or 18 by 16 plate. So that covers the whole table. Yeah. Same thing with the gear job. That actually was literally right at the limits of the table and the travel. I, I filled up the table and, you know, crammed as many parts as I could out of one plate. Did you consider machining the... Uh, profile of the parts on the back half first, then the front half, so you could oh, shut yeah. off vacuum. Yeah. So actually, that's what I that's what I did um, when I did the like. So it was super. It was a super easy operation. It's basically just profile the outer shape and then chamfer it on the top, and then uh, basically chamfer it on the bottom. Uh, do edge break. Super easy. Uh, so the way I programmed it was the roughing profiling. I left a little onion skin at the bottom. And then I do a finishing 2D contour just to clean up the sidewalls of the, each part. And that's where I actually, I have that tool go break the little onion skin on the bottom. So that's when I start leaking vacuum. Because um, I, I want that, I don't want to leave the onion skin on there. Uh, originally, I tried to leave it on there when I ran the let the champ, the backside chamfer tool take care of that. But it actually starts to melt because it's, it's not designed to cut with the, you know, the downward facing oh, part yeah, of that tool yeah. if you can't um, plunge into material with that yeah well, i mean it was well the, the i'm leaving like 0 0.06 millimeters it's, it's like super thin like i could cut it with my fingernail the amount of material that's left on the bottom so it wasn't so much the it was just it was wrapping around the tool you know it becomes a strip right as you're cutting and that tool didn't really cut it cleanly so so the first time i did it i was having issues with the the backside chamfer so the second batch i ran I let the, the sidewall finishing tool cut through that layer. And then the only op I had left after that was the backside chamfer. But the, like the first time I programmed it, I had, I did the backside or the profiling just on the front plate and then did the backside chamfer, turned that vacuum off, took those parts off and then ran the back plate. And, you know, you get all your vacuum back, right? Where you can, or most of your vacuum back, and you can turn off one of the plates, turn off all that leak. Right. But then I decided to try, you know, just try it without stopping and doing that. Uh, depopulating one of the plates and you know like i said the vacuum was really low but nothing popped off so i ended up running them just non-stop the whole plate but that's a good strategy i've had to do that on other parts where i couldn't get away with uh you know fully cutting out a full plate and still having enough vacuum um, to hang on when you get to the last few parts so you can you know split that across the front and rear plate and deal with one first and then shut off that vacuum leak and then you get all that vacuum just on the second plate and it helps helps quite a bit yeah we do that sometimes even if we could fit like uh, a piece of stock across a single vacuum plate i'll sometimes orient it so it's crossing two plates um just because like once you start cutting things out especially like thin plastics um sometimes they just have a propensity to warp we don't face both yeah. sides we just we just go straight into it and uh once you start cutting out like the the frame of the stock of whatever you're like 
cutting pieces from like sometimes that starts to pop off on one side yeah. so um just to to maximize and like focus the vacuum where we need it we'll we'll play the the whole musical chairs of like front plate back plate uh which one has vacuum or not yeah 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 you can definitely get a little extra out of the machine when you do that at the cost of you know a little bit more human intervention right the uh, the cost to your uh, your anxiety yeah exactly what else I, I think it's it's worse when you actually do have the uh, the monitoring though, because um, oh yeah, like there have been times where I'm like I'm at like 0.7 bar, and there's still like another 30 seconds left, and I'm just wondering whether or not it's going to complete or not. Whereas you can you have a sort of a a risk tolerance when you are the e stop. Can you tell it to continue, it? like to ignore the warning? No. And just- uh, oh, okay. Once it alarms out, it's it's done. Uh, you can yeah. basically just abort and go back to park. Uh, um, yeah, I can reprogram a- the sensor, but there's not really a good way to change that each time. Like right. it's it's kind of annoying and tedious, and yeah, it's not you're super well documented. Yeah, adjusting the value right on the on the yeah. vacuum sensor. It's, it's just like, a, like a, a little digital like there's like three buttons. And it's it's not a friendly interface. Yeah. Um, so there's no way for me to, to go in and like change that for each different program that we run. Yeah. That'd be nice. <laughs> it was like under control of the, the cam program. Cause you're right. It's very, it's very part geometry specific. How much you can get away with or how little vacuum is enough. Did you ever consider the, um, the vacuum card that has that mild adhesive on it's it? Such a, yeah. Not for this job. Cause it, so one of the issues I have with that, especially on plastic it's not bad on aluminum it's easy to clean up on plastic it that adhesive it grips like crazy which is the goods <laughs> which is what you want but uh it's it's pretty hard to clean up um if i had like a big vat of ethanol like you know or some sort of parts cleaning bath here that i would probably be like i would be more generous with using those plate or using those solutions especially for small parts um i try to avoid it where i can just so i don't have to deal with a lot of cleanup the adhesive on the part it's similar what you get with double-sided tape uh, it works really well like it it can be a, a the only thing that lets you run a job sometimes uh, i was running like the little these little eight millimeter brass or not brass um aluminum bronze parts just little cylinders and there's no way with a hole through the center right through hole each one of these parts they end up being little pulleys and i don't think i could have done that on regular vacuum car but the on the adhesive stuff it worked great and those are easy to clean up because they were you know small i can just drop them in a little bottle of uh, acetone and clean it right up since they're brass parts but like with plastic you can't use some of the aggressive solvents <laughs> you know, so you're kind of stuck with isopropyl or ethanol um then you're, you'll be there a while getting that goop off but yeah it works well I've, I've i have a think of my case of adhesive vacuum cards i've probably used four since i've had the machine that i've had to you know actually pull that out and that was the only way i was going to hold these parts down yeah, I think for really, really small parts, that might be the way to go. Like stuff you just wouldn't do on vacuum otherwise. Um, that can be the way, or that can be the the path to, to being able to do it on vacuum. But most of my parts are good enough with regular vac card, even the, even some of the small stuff I do. And the molds are like, those are super, you know, they're embarrassingly suitable to vacuum. <laughs> it's a large flat plate with no through holes for the whole job. So um, no issues with that. Just out of curiosity, what's the, do you guys have like a size, like, do you know, like if you go under three by three inch that you would rather put that on a vice? Like at what point does the vacuum, uh, it's not enough surface area. So I've, I do, uh, this is one inch by one inch aluminum part. This is basically a rectangle with two through holes Two uh, no, with one through hole, like an M3 through hole. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty, it's basically like one square inch It's yeah. Almost exactly one square inch. Um, so that's, you know, you can do the math, figure out how much force you have on that. And I, I do like a plate of those uh, about once a quarter. And those are on regular vacuum card, not the adhesive. The trick on that is like if you have small parts uh, or, you know, very small surface area in contact with the vacuum plate for the part, you want to make sure like when you're profiling that part, you use the smallest diameter tool. Like I use a 1.5 millimeter well, I use a three millimeter tool to go all the way to the bottom, like to profile it, but I leave it a tiny little aluminum onion skin. So I'm not losing any vacuum except for that small through hole that I bore at the end. Um, so you don't, yeah, it's two things, right? You try not to break through the bottom until you have to, right? So put that off yeah. at the end. And then uh, same thing then with through holes. Yeah. And then the amount of tool pressure. 
Yeah, and then um, for your final tool that cuts through the onion skin, like when you're doing the final release on the part, make that a smaller diameter. Like, like I said, I, d- I do three millimeter profile down the bottom of the part, almost to the floor, uh, leave a tiny little skin. Then I come back in. It's actually a one millimeter tool. I come back in with a one millimeter, one millimeter tool that's just like a tiny, like a few tenths off the, the sidewall, you know, with a little bit of extra stock to leave so it doesn't touch the sidewall, doesn't do any lifting force. And all it's doing is cutting through the onion skin. And that works really well. So, you know, you got to be conservative on that last stop because um, basically there's not much vacuum <laughs> holding that part, but it, you can get away yeah. with it. I'd say down to one inch by one inch easily enough um, without having to go to adhesive assist on the vacuum. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's also dependent on how many you're cutting out of a piece of stock. Yeah, true. Yeah, so that was an 8x8 eight eight plate. So that's four four vacuum cells on one plate on the on the Neo. That's when I used to also split, like you were talking about, split the front and back um, until I got comfortable that it was nothing was going to go bad, and I've moved it all to the front plate. Yeah, there's, there's lots of little tricks to getting the most out of the vacuum. Uh, the main thing is, you know, <laughs> start slow, be conservative, and then kind of go up to the point where you're starting to see the vacuum get into the dangerous area and uh, come up with a different strategy at that point. So basically, since you don't have the sensor, your hands on the e-stop and you're no. waiting to see if the... So I works. have a vacuum gauge, so I know where, if I'm even getting into the danger zone, I have plenty of warning. Yeah, because basically what you see okay. is, you know, for like 99% of that job, the vacuum is where it was when I started because I haven't cut through the bottom. Um, at the very last stop... While I'm watching it, yeah, as it does the final profile around each part, I see a little bit of vacuum. Yeah, I lose a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, but I never got, I never get to my, what I consider the danger zone, which is 0. 0.6, uh, minus 0. Okay. 0.6 bar. Yeah, below that, I'm, I got my hand on the e-stop. <laughs> Actually, probably about six, <laughs> okay. yeah, 0. 0.65 usually uh, for small parts. I'm, I'm watching it very closely. But, uh, yeah, I think that job, I think it doesn't even get, if I went to a bigger plate, I'd probably use more vacuum. But with eight by eight, I'm still at like seven or 0.7 bar, which is fine. Uh, they're not going to, you know, as long as I'm being conservative, I, I wouldn't go like rip through the aluminum at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, you, it's, it's, you know, like I said, it's a little bit of strategy and experience. You kind of figure out what works. So one thing, uh, so the one CapEx expenditure I'm considering, it's not too big, but uh, I only have one vacuum pump right now. And... I've been, you know, it's been on my bucket list to get a, a backup pump because, um, you know, I've got backup for my air compressor, but I don't have backup for the vacuum. And if either one of those are out, I'm out of business, you know, until I get it fixed. Originally, I was going to buy basically the identical pump that I have now, but I see that Bush has uh, like a redesign on that pump. Their latest model uh, in that family is like the current pump is 28 CFM. And I think the new one. I was looking at is 35 CFM. So that's actually, you know, that's one way to actually improve things is, is to get a stronger vacuum pump that can handle leakage. Even, you know, just higher CFM is more tolerant of leakage. So uh, I'm thinking maybe going to the 35 or it's either 35 or 39, but it's, you know, if you're really crazy, I could go get the M8 pump, which is like 80 CFM. Um, but that's, you know, that's way more than I need. Uh, I want something that can still run on the same breaker that I have the current pump on. So I think the 35 was still two horsepower or 2.5, maybe. Uh, should be a drop in replacement. Um, so I'll probably buy that this year, switch that over to my primary and keep my original pump as the backup. Um, and that should give me even, you know, bigger safety margin on small vacuum parts. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like a pretty worthwhile purchase there. Anything to, any type of like backup just in case. Yeah. Right? Well, so backup with an improvement. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think it'll perform better um, on leaky jobs like this, uh, like the stuff I'm doing. Like, I think with that pump, I probably would have not been at half a bar. I probably would have still had like 0.6 bar on the ABS job. Because it, it'd be, you know, it could tolerate that leak a little better without losing so much vacuum. So, yeah, that's probably the only thing. It's not really exciting, <laughs> but uh, it's good peace of mind for me. I think what else I got. Um, I think the other thing I decided this year is I'm not going to work on any of my, like I might work on some design stuff, but I, I'm not going to try to introduce any of my own products. Like I just kind of hit a wall on that on um, like most of the stuff I had in my original product queue, like other people have come out with. So 
like they beat me to it because I was, you know, I didn't focus on it. Um, and most of the products I've seen, you know, this is more on the hobby machine work holding stuff. Um, it's really good. Like even Winston's got a, a nice vice design, tombstone vice design. Uh, so I'm kind of, if, if I come out with something, it's not going to be probably related to work holding for the hobby class machines. I might do some Neo stuff, Neo accessories, but, uh, work holding accessories. But right now it's like, I have so much other stuff I got to focus on, you know, just to keep the business running. That that was kind of a relief to say, you know, just take that off my plate for a year. Um, cause I was, I was getting a little bit of angst about, you know, I should be spending some time on this. Uh, cause that was originally why I bought the machine. But, um, yeah, right now it's like, I, I like my current strategy and where the business is going as far as, you know, focusing on, uh, customer work. Yeah, I was actually going to ask if you're going to work on your personal projects. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I would. My counter argument to that is like, I mean, I, yeah, you you got a business to run, totally understandable. But maybe shave some time for yourself. I, I um, do like non-commercials, like non-product stuff. I, I do fun stuff on the machine, like, or you know, something I want okay. for the house. Although my 3D printer is scratching that itch a lot more than Neo right now. So. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's uh, it's been it's come in handy. That's that was a good purchase under five plus. Still real happy with that. Definitely recommend it uh, for people that need you. Know, if you want a sixteen by sixteen build area, that's a good way to go. Um, I think you're you're looking at. Did you order your new printer, the XY, or are you just looking at it right now? Uh, I pre-ordered that Prusa one that they yeah. talked. I, was it the XL? I don't remember the, yeah. the naming thing or whatever. It was a Core XY um, design, right? Yeah, yeah Core XY yeah, design. So yeah. fast. Well, I don't want to turn this into another 3D printer episode. We'll save that for when you get it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I think the next personal project to keep working on that keyboard mount for the Neo. Uh, I have the design done. I just haven't machined it. It's going to be a, a rotary part, but it's long, so I'm going to have to come up with some sort of tailstock support for that. That's kind of what's stopping me on that. Yeah, I never got any more demand for or, uh, any more requests to make signs, which I'm actually kind of glad. <laughs> the you know that sign I made for my sister that was uh, it was labor of love, but man, that was a lot of work. Uh, I don't yeah. think anyone would be willing to pay me what I would actually have to charge to make one of those. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was a fun project. Yeah, and I'm guilty of this too. Like, I'm trying to carve out more time for my personal stuff here. So my goal this year is just to make sure that I I do some fun stuff and not forget why. Like, it's fun to make other people's stuff, right? But eventually, what got us into this in the first place was us wanting to make our own things. So uh, I I definitely want to focus on spending some time in the shop on my personal time to make stuff or do some. I have all these things that I've been wanting to make for like years, you know. So I'm trying to push to get at least one of these things out by the end of this year. So we'll see how good I am about you see, that. Um, so Marvin, you know, when, since he has a current at his disposal for, like you said, on the weekend to make your own stuff, um, he, ma- he made this cool little uh, keychain bottle opener out of, uh, I think it was zirconium, like hard zirconium. It's already, you know, not green. He machined it in the uh, post-centered and fired state. So it's super tough. Um yeah, that'd be kind of, you know, you have a current, you can make something like that. <laughs> something cool out of a ceramic. Uh, submicron surface uh, <laughs> bottle openers. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't see too many in that material, that's for sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not machined anyway. I don't. But I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, so you too, Winston. Try to do some fun stuff here and there. Yeah, I will. Probably later this year. I want to get back into just, like, making a couple things that I can, like, put on my store doesn't have to be crazy things but like just to have something because that's also like a process i can share just how i go through a design how i make more than like three whatever fancy fixture thing i come up with so at some point i'll do that um but that's it's a couple months down the road yeah are you guys is the hdm shipping yet or is that still hdm yeah. yeah okay um i think we're just about through the initial backlog oh the pre-order um, yeah. so yeah, yeah. So we're in good shape. Um, and it's like the initial response has been pretty great. So I, like Vince has been doing some yeah, awesome stuff on it. And say. there's a couple other in the wild. Yeah, that looks like a, 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 a machine's kind of tempting me. So I don't know. If I had room, maybe when I moved to the new shop. Like I don't want to do wood on the Neo. So that's like I just don't want to deal with the mess. Um, 
that I keep having. Like, yeah, unless you want to like jury rig like some kind of dust collection on the Neo. Yeah. Um, they have dust collection like, system. I just didn't option that, and yeah, I don't really want to. Like, I don't want to put the dust boot on there. Just it just kind of looks like it just gets in the way when you're doing other stuff. So um, I think I'd rather just move to another, you know, have a dedicated machine that would run materials. I'm just not comfortable running on the Neo, like any kind of, like you were doing the, the carbon fiber and that kind of stuff. So it would be nice to have, you know, maybe a traditional, just a pure router for some of that stuff. But like I said, room's the problem right now, Definitely, space yeah. in the shop. That's a big <laughs> machine. So. Yeah. But I mean, it's still, it fits, um, like the footprint isn't ridiculous. It's not like a, a four by four machine. Uh, it's it's just a little bigger than a standard shape oko. Okay. So you could you could put it on a workbench. You could put something above it, something below it. Um, you could kind of make a little tower of a uh, desktop uh, digital manufacturing. Yeah. And you mentioned you guys are working on a VFD solution for that. Uh, it has a VFD. Oh, it does now. already. Okay. Um, we're working on uh, expanding VFD offerings to other machines. Uh, I got you. But that's probably. Um, at least a month or two out. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. So I don't know, like, you know, it's been a long, I meant to mention this at the beginning, you know, it's been a big gap since we last recorded. I think it's mainly just cause we've all been kind of busy. It's hard to find the time to, to get together. Uh, so I don't know what our 2022 frequency podcast frequency will be, but other than I can promise you, we will do more episodes than just this one this year. But um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I wouldn't expect them more frequently than once a month. Uh, probably going to be less than that, uh, at least for a little while, until we all kind of get back to our steady state of uh, workload. We can get time to do this, but we're not giving up on it. I hope you guys feel the same way. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy talking with you guys. Yeah, no, yeah I, I hope it's here to stay. Yeah. I think about a month or maybe a month and a half would be a good cadence until we are uh, on firm footing in terms of our schedule. Yeah. Yeah, assuming that happens at some point. Yeah. I think uh, we can probably call this a wrapper at an hour and 16 minutes. I'll go ahead and uh, say goodbye and uh, talk to you guys next time. Until the next episode. Take care, guys. Until next time, guys. Bye.